what we're going to be doing today is picking up in our study of peace. Each year when we go into the fall at Sturgeon Bay Community Church, what we do is we cast a theme for the entire year ahead, and that theme is going to be at peace. You'll see the yard signs that are out here. You can grab one of those, take them, put one up in your yard or your neighbor's, whatever, you know. And the whole idea is that we want to constantly be thinking this year about what it is to be a people at peace. So in great groups, we're going to discuss it, and all throughout the year, you'll constantly hear us referring back to um, the way we think, the way we handle money, the way we solve conflicts, um, the way we interact, the way we lead. All of this is about being a people at peace. And peace really is the absence of inner strife. It's, it's giving away these things on the inside that cause us anxiety and tension and strife and, and animosity between people. We want to be a people at peace. In Philippians 4, 7, it says this. Do not worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So this is going to be the subject of our study. We began this study really by talking about the fact that as we look around the world today, so many people seem to be consumed with guilt or anxiety or self-loathing or victimization or victimhood. We see people are ready to argue and fight over the things they believe in, not finding the middle, but exploding to the margins and in hate and, and in tension with each other, speaking words that are divisive and destructive. Now we see wars breaking out all over the planet for little things that have become huge things. Our world is a world that needs the peace that Christians can bring. And so our study began that first week talking about the power of peace itself and how we're called to be people who are at peace because that's who Christians are. We're at peace with God and peace with one another. James, as he was writing to the church in Jerusalem, used three illustrations about peace And they all had to do with the tongue, the words of our mouth. And what he's saying is the tongue is like a fire. It's like the rudder of a ship. It's like a horse's bridle. It's a small thing that can turn huge organizations or ships or conversations or nations, little things that can have dramatic impact, the tongue. And so we as Christians need to be a people who think hard about the words that we use and the conversations in which we engage, the way that we speak to people and the way we hear people. The next week, which was last week, we talked a lot about this thing called cause and effect. Now, where this conversation leads is understanding that the soil of our heart will produce a harvest. If you have corrupted soil, if you plant corrupted soil, it's a corrupted harvest. We talked about what's in the well will always come up in the bucket. You can't have a well that has salt water one day and fresh water the next. That No, it's a well, and what's in it comes up in the bucket. And then we also talked about the heart and the mouth connection, that what's in your heart will come out your mouth. And so some illustrations or some scriptures, rather, that started, it was in Proverbs 4, 23, is Solomon is telling his son Lemuel, son, listen to me, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. What's in your heart will drive your actions, your behaviors, and your values. So let's talk a little bit backing up about that cause and effect thing that we did last week. And in the cause and effect, we talk about the soil of your soul. And we use the example of the contaminated soil of the He's farm in Shandua, China. And, and the soil itself was contaminated. So no matter what seeds landed in that fantastic soil, what came out of that soil was fantastically contaminated, wasn't it? 
Kim and I kid around that about our, at our property where we live, you can put anything out there and it just grows and it makes us look like we know what we're doing. We don't understand. We're terrible at gardening. It's just the soil's so good. You can drop seeds on the ground and then people come by and pick stuff and, it, and it's great. If you need any cantaloupes or watermelons, there's way too many out at our place, so just stop by. And so, But here's what we find. If the soil of our hearts is contaminated, if it's full of things like guilt, animosity, contempt, disdain, if that's what it's full of, then no matter what kind of seeds are planted in you, what comes out in the form of harvest are spiteful and disdainful and guilt-laden and angry produce because that's the soil it was planted in. Now just give me a yeah if you understand what I'm saying. Okay, so, so we have to be careful that the soil of our heart is kept clean. And this is that heart and that mouth connection that Solomon was trying to get Lemuel to understand. I want you to hear him, how clear he is now to his son. This is in Proverbs 23, 7, and he says, Young man, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, the wisest man who ever lived is speaking to men and women then and men and women today, and he's saying, People, as you think in your heart, so are you. If your heart is wounded, if your heart is angry, if your heart is grateful, if your heart is glad, if your heart is encouraged, then what you receive grows out of that heart, and that's what will come back out of your mouth and out of your hands and out of your actions, okay? That's the heart-mouth connection. This is what Solomon was getting across to his son. So as we think about this concept of peace now, understand from the Psalms as David was speaking, he said this, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now let's say that verse together and then let's unpack it just slightly. You ready? May the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If it grows in the heart, it will be demonstrated in the mouth. And so what we're asking is, God, would you please help me meditate in my heart on the things that are of you, my rock, my redeemer, that which gives me solidity, that which forgives me when I'm wrong, that which provides for me. May that produce the words of my mouth that encourage other people. And that brings about peace. Now, just quickly as we wrap up, we had talked about the lab, what we had talked about the last couple of weeks. Um, we understood that there's a root connection, okay? Now, you understand this innately, but let's just make sure it's in the front of our minds as we prepare to move forward. How often is it that we <clears throat> react to and seek to correct behaviors while failing to engage the cause of those behaviors? You see, you can punish or you can discipline. You can train, but you need to discipline. So that what we're seeing is the reason behind the fact that I'm 10 pounds overweight right now is the food that I eat is in excess of the energy that I use. Okay? You can try to take diet pills and that may help. But the fact of the matter is there's a reason that I weigh too much. I eat too much and work out too little. The way to fix it is to solve the root of the problem, not to buy bigger clothes. Right? It's, shut up, Phil. I thought we were friends. <laughs> Phil said, is it only 10? And no, it's more than that. But nobody asked you, did we? Okay. <laughs> so, Pastor Math, thanks. What we have to do is engage the root cause of what we see 
um, for, for the words that are coming out of our mouth. It's not just you said bad words, it's that the bad words came out of a place that's bad. We need to solve the heart problem. So that's part of what we'll look at today. But I want you to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 34 to 35 as we get ready. He says, how can those who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. Jesus was hammering on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, and listen, he's hammering on us too. And what comes out of our mouth came from the treasury of our heart. In the words of my grandfather, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. Don't be surprised when somebody who's saying mean things turns out to be just a mean person. Turns out somebody who says gracious and godly things turns out to be a gracious and godly person. So let's be the gracious and godly person, right? So let's start with this. It begins this way, this week, by talking about the power of exchange. Now, how many of you remember your first cell phone? Anybody? Okay. I'm just old enough here to remember. Some of you are lying. But I'm just old enough to remember when we moved from pagers to bag phones. Okay. And I think it was about 1989, 90. How do you think, Chuck? But is that about right? Kathy, is he right? What do you think? It's right about that time. So I was a youth pastor at the time, and I remember that, you know, when you went on youth trips, you needed to have the pager so that people could get in touch with you. So you could pull over and use this thing called a pay phone. Now, if you're a millennial, here's how this works. You keep change in your pocket, which are the round silver denominations of currency. You've heard of these. And you would take these and you would put two dimes or, or quarter or whatever. Don't look at me like that. You, you, would, you would drop a dime in the machine and then you, could, then you would turn the dial and it would connect you with the phone, but it had a wire on it. Okay, And so then you could communicate with people, but the pager was wireless and let you know you had to talk to them. And then came cell phones, which meant in your car or your truck or the church van, you could dial people and you could talk to them. And then came the Oki 9. I remember my Oki 9. And as a matter of fact, I still have my Oki 9. The amazing thing about the Oki is that although it weighed equal to a cinder block, it did not have wires. And it had this battery life, wait for it, eight hours which means you could charge your phone in the morning and all day long, you could make two or three calls. And so the cool thing about the Oki 9 was it was a radical improvement out of the old. And when I got the Oki 9, I was like, Psh, who needs a bag phone? <laughs> I thought I was kind of awesome. I was the coolest youth pastor in Richmond. And then, then came out the Oki 900, which I still have. And it was little. You could put it in your pocket. And it had a battery life of like eight and a half hours, right? But you could use it a lot. And, and it had a little antenna you pulled up. And then remember the StarTac came out? Anybody remember the StarTac? The flip phone? Now, this was cool. What could happen was you could talk and when you were done. You'd go close it. And like if you had a holster, Dave Ribbons had one. I know he did because he's that kind of guy. You'd be like and put it in the holster and then you could cruise on. And you were feeling kind of awesome. And it's as cool as today as being able to go check it out. I got the 11 Pro. You jealous? No? You should be, because when you try one, you're going to be like, who could possibly settle for a Samsung? <laughs> Here's what happens. Every time new technology, I know some of you raise your Samsungs like, <laughs> but, but look, when new stuff comes out, we want the new stuff, not the old, because it's just better. It just it seems to improve our life. Here's where this illustration goes. You exchange the old for the new. 
And as Christians, as Jesus followers, here's what we're really asked to do. Exchange the old and the limitations that it had for the new, which is more freeing and gives you more capacity in Christ. I can forgive more. I can be happier. I can be gracious. I can celebrate with others more when I'm in Jesus. And I've given up my old life of being critical or negative or jealous or hateful or vindictive. That gets to not be who I am anymore because in Jesus, I'm a new creature. How many of you are a new creature in Jesus? You see, we get to exchange the old for the new. That's part of, of life. The better, the, the, the newer stuff is supposed to be better. Now, I understand some of you, like Ken, are up here going, I like my 65 Mustang better than my 95 Mustang. I agree. However, in general, what we're saying is the old has passed away and the new is in front of us, and that's what we are in Jesus. We're exchanging the corrupt for the new. So Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, you heard Gina say this earlier. You have been bought, you've been taught with regards to your former way of life to put off that old self, which is being corrupted and is deceitful by its deceitful desires, to make to be made new in the attitude in your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, embrace your newness in Jesus Christ. If you live in your old way of life, it will be disappointing and embarrassing because you know better. As a matter of fact, have you ever come to a point in your life where you realize, ooh, the way that I'm behaving needs to go away and never show up again? Have you ever been down that road? How about in fashion and in your clothes? Have you ever had some things that you're like, ooh, hmm, I should never wear that again? As it turns out, I was doing some research this week, and, uh, and you guys know that Joe Canopin used to be in the newspaper industry, right? So he was a writer. What I did not know is that Joe was also in the fashion industry, and what I discovered while researching is I found some clothes Joe was wearing back in 1970. Check it out. He's still got the same mustache. Check it. Okay. Would you wear that outfit today, Joe? Okay. I know. Okay. <laughs> Maggie, would you let your dad out of the house wearing that outfit? Okay, no. Look, trying to live in the past way of doing things is embarrassing and ultimately self-diminishing. If we try to continue on in the old way of life, from which we have been saved, from which you have been transformed by a renewed mind, ultimately that is self-destructive, diminishing, embarrassing. It's not God-honoring. It has to go away. Now, don't raise hands right now, but think in your own life. Are there behaviors that used to characterize you that you were like, oh, I'd just really rather not talk about that? <laughs> that was then. That is so not who I am today. But if we're going to be honest, how many of you would recognize that even in your life today, there's behaviors, there's characteristics, there's soil, there's places in your heart that really need to be transformed by the renewing? That soil needs to be amended and purified by living Jesus' way so that we don't conduct ourselves in ways that are ultimately embarrassing and diminishing. Could we agree that that's a reality? And, and on the other hand, would you agree with me that living according to the new nature is rewarding and revitalizing? Because we find that to forgive is actually a gift you give yourselves, right? Okay, let me say it one more time because some of you were zoned out for just a second forgiving is actually a gift you give yourself. Because by forgiving, what you're not carrying around now is animosity and, and, and disdain and hate and criticism. You're letting those things go because all of those are oppressive and wear you down. They're embarrassing. 
And just like Maggie's not letting Joe go out of the house, Dad, you are not wearing that. Here's the thing. You should have people in your life who are around you to love you enough to say, oh, mm, you probably shouldn't be going out of the house with that attitude, right? You shouldn't be going out of the house with that lack of humility. You shouldn't be going out of the house with that anger. Hey, can you, can you turn off whatever it is you're listening to that's making you so angry and tense and let that go? Because it's not bringing revitalization and rewarding and a gentle spirit to you. Let's put those off and put on Christ. That's the point of this exchange. Now, David was experiencing this very same thing. And in Psalms 39 to 40, as you read through it, what you start to see is a change in David's heart song. Now, what's in the heart comes out of the mouth, right? What's in the well comes out of the bucket. What's in the soil is ultimately manifest in the produce. And what David was doing, he had been caught up in being angry, And he was focusing on the fact that the people around him, the people of Israel, his subjects, he's the king for heaven's sakes. And they were not showing him the respect, the appreciation, or the kindness that he felt he deserved. It just seems like a few years ago you were singing my praises. Saul has killed his thousands. Dave's killed his tens of thousands. You know, David gave us a kingdom. David solidified the kingdom. He's a man after God's own heart. Come on, where's the love, man? But he's not getting that love. There's tension and there's anger. And David's mad about it. He's not getting what he thinks he deserves and he's owed. Now, I know no, none of you have ever felt that way with your kids or your coworkers or your boss, but just imagine you're David for a second if you need the stretch. And so David begins to turn his eyes to God and think about what God's done for him and who he is to God and focusing on what he owes God and what God has given him and how those things just don't line up. God is so much more gracious than David deserves. And as David is focusing on that through the course of Psalms 39 and 40, you see the imprecatory, um, uh, the, the negative, I'll get them back language, sorry. And that starts to turn into, into graciousness and loving and wanting to share and, and wanting to demonstrate the love that God has given him and what God's lavished on him to others. And so David's heart song changes. A soul focused on the abundance of God, his grace, forgiveness, patience, and kindness, that starts to come out because what's in the heart is connected to the mouth and what's in the soil determines how the influence and the words and the actions of other people are transmitted and produce good fruit. You hearing that? So if the soil of your heart is a soil that has negativity in it, then the exchange is that you need to release the negativity for gratitude and thankfulness. And there's some examples of this uh, that, that we see across Scripture. These aren't all of them. These are just the few I could fit on the page, and you could still see the text. That's about the best I could do. So in John 8, 1 through 11, you guys remember John 8, 1 through 11? We're talking about the Beatitudes. Um, and we also hear it in Luke. Um, so uh, if I have time, I'll come back to this and read this in just a minute. During the course of the Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about this exchange of judgment for kindness. Greed is turned to it's all about God in Romans eleven thirty six. In James 1, 19 through 20, we see anger exchanged for resolve. Huh? Isn't it better to go from being angry and acting out of anger to going, okay, decision, this is how I'm going to act, this is how I'm going to engage this. It's intentional. Doesn't have to be lovey-dovey, but it has to be intentional, but it's not angry. Scripture tells us be angry and do not sin. So we have to exchange anger for resolve. We have to exchange revenge for forgiveness. We see this in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 22. How about resentment for admiration, thankfulness 
This replaces the demand for restitution. In Matthew 5 and Proverbs 12, we see calm displacing rage. Wouldn't that be great if we saw more of that in our world today? And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we see self-loathing overcome by an awareness of God's favor for us. So the soil of our spirits is transformed. It's renewed. So that now, amended soil produces good produce, brothers and sisters. Now, isn't that a better exchange than constantly angry and judgy and greedy and resentful? Isn't it better that when, when, when the seeds of other people's words are received by you, what's produced is something that makes them happier, them more whole, and you more whole, and builds better relationships. Doesn't that just make better sense? That's the life that Christ has called us to. Now, um, uh, an illustration I used to use, a, a tool that we used to use when I was a youth pastor, um, was, was a little thing, and we called it the tell-it-to-God tool. So if you're a note-taker, this is a cool one to take. Um, we did this at a youth camp one time. We used to go on this thing called Adventure Camp every year, Adventure Week, and we would go and, and take the, the kids who had gone on at least three mission trips or done three mission projects in the year, got an ability to go to Adventure Camp. And let me tell you what, those were the hundred hardest tickets to get, and these kids were like fighting over getting those because here's what we did at Adventure Camp. You got the coolest t-shirt, you got the coolest backpack, the best food. We went caving, whitewater rafting, climbing. Uh, we did the, the the night tag with the flashlights and all this. It was the camp everybody wanted to go to. And we always had a theme. And one of the years that theme was, tell me. And it was, and it was, it was this picture of God saying, tell me. And that was the whole idea. And here's how it works. When you, when you encounter the words of someone, okay, before you make a determination on how to take something someone has said, or perhaps how to react with what you've received from another person, Take exactly the story that you believe at this moment and tell it straight to God. Okay, it goes like this. Somebody says, oh, you look nice today. And in your mind, you hear, that's a terrible outfit. I look so much better than you. I'm judging you. You're really not all that pretty or or up to date or fashionable. I'm, I'm saying these words to be critical to you. God, that person said, you look nice today. And they were just being mean to me. And I could just tell that, that they were judging me and condescending. And you tell that story to God. And then you stop. Okay, I heard that person say this to me, and all I heard was criticism and negativity and hate and, and condescension or wrath. And, and you tell God that very same story, and then here's what you do. Number two, realizing that God is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-wise, all-present in all places at all times, ask Him, what's the real story? What did they really mean by those words, and what did I need to really hear by those words? And then, in those moments of prayer, in those moments of focus, go back and respond out of what the Holy Spirit's shown you, okay? So this is, this is the tell it, tell it to God mode. Do you guys understand that? Okay? There's a book came out a little while back by Les Parrott. It's called Three Seconds. Anybody familiar with the book? Three Seconds, right? And Les, uh, Dr. Les, like I know him, Dr. Parrott's intention is, is but no, you're leaving? The, the thing that, that, that Dr. Parrott is saying is this. Take three seconds before you respond, okay? Somebody says something to you, think about it, objectify, you know, objectively engage it, and then respond. Take three seconds. Now, I need the one called three minutes, <laughs> um, and it, a, little, a little more time to process, a little more time to tell it through God, uh, process and work that out before responding, but sometimes I find that I think I'm so smart, I just respond without the three seconds. Anybody, anybody with me? 
It's just me. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Anybody else? Okay. Thanks, Ken. They, they've already done it. Bill, you're out. Joe, nobody believes you. So here's what, here's what we're thinking. If you, take, if you could just take some time to hear what they're saying, process it, and then respond. If you could take some time to respond how that person's interacting with you and wonder why before you respond, what you're doing is you're changing the soil into which the seeds of their words have landed. You see how that works? And now there's a better chance you're going to respond accurately if you can hear right. Okay, so what are words? Before we move into this last section, what are words? Okay, words are air blown through meat. If I'm wrong, let me know. Go ahead. Let it process for just a minute. Some of you are like, well, that's certainly reductionist. That's the whole point. Words are sounds that we make. And we put the sounds together in our language, in our time, in our culture. Sometimes they have a funny accent there, hey? And sometimes we say them about right. But we put our words together and we, we get thoughts across by blowing air out of our mouths. And other people, they're going to take the, their meat of their ear and they're going to take the vibrations of your air and they're going to translate them. And so we have the encoding of ideas and the decoding of ideas. And in this process, they this is so cool. Words always land exactly right with exactly the right meaning and exactly the right understanding, exactly the right inflection. And we fully understand each other each and every time, right? No? Am I living in a dream world? Oh. So as it turns out, when we communicate as people, there's a lot of work that goes into speaking and hearing. Shouldn't there be? So if we're using this tell it to God method, what we're saying is, that person said this to me. And take some time to listen to the Holy Spirit say, I know their inner thoughts. I know the soil that it came from. They had a terrible day-to-day child. They really are wounded by the way their parents treated them 25 years ago. When you say that, it sounds like what their mean mother said. And so when you say that, that's what it feels like to them. Could you extend some grace and perhaps not judge too harshly the way they received or what they said? That's the kind of process that we're asking us to do. So the tell it to God mode, trick, method is just an opportunity for us to take a couple seconds and make sure that the soil that we're planting seeds in is non-corrupted soil. The next thing we talk about has to do with those seeds, and it's the seeds of grace. This is a gift-giving habit, okay? This is a Christian habit to be graceful in the way that we hear and in the way that we speak. Now, the word grace that we use today is not the word Jesus used. In other words, here's what didn't happen. Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, walking in Aix of Judea, did not say, grace, 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 grace. The word he used was cheris. And the word cheris is actually a little richer word than the way we translate it just as grace. And that word cheris, really those words, that air that's blown through me, it's trying to get across this concept, favor, showing deference, and a disposition towards kindness. So that's what grace is. And if we have gracious ears and gracious mouths and gracious hearts, it means that in our conversation and interactions with one another, what we're doing is we're showing favor, offering deference, and having a disposition of kindness in the way that we hear and in the way that we speak. That's a Christian way of conducting ourselves. 
Let me hear, let's hear from Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. God saved you by grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Paul the Apostle is challenging the church there in Ephesus and helping them remember, you didn't earn your salvation. God demonstrated favor, deference towards you when you didn't earn it or deserve it. He gave you that. It's a gift. And if we are going to be gift-giving Christians, we have to be extending that same grace, that same cherish, that same favor to other people, even when we disagree with one another. That's the charitable, gracious behavior of Jesus' followers. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, For what gives you the right to make such judgment against others? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were anything other than a gift? In Hebrews 4.16, Apollos, the the author of of Hebrews, I think it's Apollos, (laughs) said, "Let let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, stop. What time of need is he talking about? Look at the verse. Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What need? What need is he talking about? When have you ever needed mercy or grace or forgiveness or deference or favor or just a kind response? Has that ever been you? That's your time of need. Here's the perspective. You ready? I want you to imagine you right now died. Boom. Oops. And you went from sitting right here, and suddenly you're standing in in heaven in the throne throne of Jesus. Oops. And there's no time to be like, oh, I had some things to confess real quick. Or, oh, I kind of left some things hanging. And, And you're standing in front of Jesus all of a sudden. And you suddenly, like Isaiah, realize all the sin that's all over you. Remember what happened to Isaiah when he found himself in the presence of God? What did he, what did he say? Yeah, whoa, whoa, I'm a man of what? Yeah, unclean lips. In other words, Isaiah's saying, I'm somebody whose words and speech are not up to par with the person I'm supposed to be. And he's suddenly keenly aware of that when he's in front of Jesus. Hey, that's your time of need. You suddenly realize what it is to be in front of the throne of Jesus and realize how the way that I conduct myself in this moment needs to be in direct correlation with how I see myself in front of the throne of Jesus. What do I want from him? That's your time of need. When that person at the drive-thru is snarky and sarcastic and rude, the way you respond is the same way that you want God to respond to you when you come before the throne of Jesus Christ. Ouch, right? Hey, anybody, don't raise hands because it'll get awkward. Anybody have a wise apple for a teenager from time to time? Yeah. And the first thing that comes into your mind is probably illegal. Uh, but then you're thinking, okay, how I respond to little Mr. Know-it-all uh, or little Miss Know-it-all right this minute needs to be with grace as well as strength. And you have to think about that for those three seconds, three minutes. This is how we respond to one another at all times with grace with charity, remembering who we are in front of Jesus. Let me close with a bit of an example. Um, there is a, there is a, a story here. Ooh, where'd I put it? There it goes. 
It goes like this. Um, A little girl has a few gummy bears, and her friend has a chocolate bar. The girl is reluctant to share her gummy bears unless she receives a piece of chocolate in return. She's focused on the scarcity of her candy, but if that girl had an abundance of gummy bears, a huge bag full in her hand, and a barrel full in her room, and a dad who promised to continually fill the barrel up with more whenever she used it, she would be much more likely to share freely. She would probably give away gummy bears all the time without demanding candy in return. For a small piece of chocolate, her friend might receive 10 pounds of gummy bears. Any smart people in the room here? How often are we willing to share the gummy bears of the forgiveness and the grace that we've received from God with other people? Or how likely is it that we are still acting like the little girl who's being kind of selfish and short-sighted, thinking, but you owe me. You owe me. No, there's a debt you owe me. I didn't like what you said. You said it and I heard this. You ought to be nicer to me. Nobody loves me. Any words that come here are just words that are empty and hollow because I'm unworthy of being loved. Mm. You see, charity, grace, means just like those gummy bears, we lavish forgiveness and charity on others as they speak and as we speak back. That's the exchange effect. Let's change corrupted soil for great soil so that when things come in, the produce is godly. Now, each week during our, our study, what we've done is we've taken the time at the end of our service to pray together as a people and as a congregation. What I mean by this is I'm going to open us in prayer, and then I want to encourage you, the saints, the children of Jesus, let's pray together. Let's hear your voices lifted in prayer, and let's engage in prayer the things that we've discussed today. Number one, oh God, help us see just how much you have forgiven us. So somebody right now may be thinking about this. Would you be the person to voice that prayer for us as a congregation today, helping us just realize, God, how much you've forgiven us so we forgive that way? For somebody else in the room, would you be thinking right now about, God, teach us a new heart song. A new heart song is a people that thinks of all the things, all the graciousness, the forgiveness, the things we have to be grateful for. Lord, let that be what we ponder and think about. Let that shape our soil. And somebody else, would you this morning consider perhaps lifting your voice in prayer? Um, Tell us what is true, God, as we tell it to you. Help us to use the, the tell it to God trick method moment to make sure that we say what we think we heard and they give God's Holy Spirit the opportunity to breathe wisdom into us so that when it comes back out of the well is holiness and sweet water and encouraging. So let's take a few moments in prayer. I'll open us. It's your turn. And then I'll close us after a few minutes. Our Lord, our God, we just come to you this morning.